Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so excited that you are here. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Tom Brunzel. Tom is an experienced teacher, school leader, researcher, and advisor. He is a director of education at Berry Street, Victoria, and a fellow at the University of Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Tom is known for his pioneering work in bringing together best practice in trauma-informed education and wellbeing science. His new book, Creating Trauma-Informed, Strength-Based Classrooms, co-authored with Dr. Jackie Nourish, is a game changer. It's a practical guide for teachers and any other big-hearted humans that want evidence-based ways to support young people to heal, grow, learn, and thrive. In this conversation, Tom and I discuss the real challenges we face with working with young people, the impact stress and trauma can have on the way we feel, function, and relate, how to cultivate unconditional positive regard for others, how to craft belonging in our classrooms and school communities, and so much more. Listening back to this conversation, I noticed that there might be a few terms that you are unfamiliar with, so I thought it might be helpful to give you a heads up. The five basic needs. So often we talk about needs or unmet needs. Needs, understanding students through the behaviours through the lens of five basic needs, physical needs, emotional needs, cognitive needs, energetic needs, and spiritual needs. We also make mention of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs tells us that first we need food and shelter. We need those physiological needs. Then we need safety. Then it's love and belonging, then esteem, then self-actualization. So it's really hard to ask people to think about their best self and peak experiences when they're not feeling safe or feeling like they belong. So we really need to think about that hierarchy of needs. Also, we talk about strengths. So when we talk about strengths, it's what's the best parts of us. And I'm going to have a link in the show notes to the Values in Action survey where you can find out about your strengths and the strengths of the people that you work with. We also talk about positive primers. So primers are simply activities that we do to prime students to be engaged, creative and flexible in their thinking. So this could be particular sense. It could be starting with a what went well. It could be music. It could be simply a smile and say hello. So we're priming the environment for learning. We also talk about the window of tolerance. So this is a term we use to describe the zone of arousal in which someone can function most effectively. When we're functioning within this zone of tolerance, we're able to learn and we're able to take in new information. When we're operating outside of this zone, it's really hard to be present and to process. So think about the people that you work with. How wide is their window of tolerance? How long does it take before they get into a state of fight or flight? So just thinking about that window of tolerance. We also talk about ACEs. So that's an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. So these include, but not limited to, abuse, 
challenging family experiences and different forms of neglect. So we know that if students have a number of ACEs, that's going to impact the way that they feel and function. And the final term is neuroception. So this is a capacity for students to read cues in facial expressions, tone of voice and body language. So students that have had some really challenging experiences are often really good at this neuroception. They're really good at noticing other people and being able to pick up on those social cues really quickly. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tom Brunzel. Tom, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Meg, I'm excited to be here today and with all of your listeners. And before we start, I just have to say thank you so much for writing your book, Creating Trauma-Informed Strength-Based Classrooms. As I read it, I was high-fiving, I was fist-pumping, I had moments of tears and thought, this is what we need as educators and not just educators, as parents and big-hearted people living in this world with other humans. So thank you for putting this effort in to creating this incredible resource. Oh, I really appreciate that, Megan. That's really the highest praise because you're saying basically it's speaking the language of teachers and hopefully quite helpful. Frankly, I have to be honest with you, probably as most authors, I was just trying to write to my karmic earlier self and trying to correct the course for all the things that I didn't know and the things I wish I'd known. So I'm glad that it feels like it's hitting a good mark for you. Absolutely. And let's talk about it. Tom, what was your journey to being a teacher like? Did you always want to be a teacher? Oh, good question. I... I wanted to be a helper, and I always knew that I would go into a field of care or helping or therapeutics. And I, if if I may, because I this story is important to me. I, you know, in my mid twenties, after I tried a, def- a couple of other careers and things, I just knew I needed to find a values aligned place to spend my time for the rest of my life. And so I really kind of made these Venn diagrams on my wall at the time. Was I going to be a social worker, a therapist? therapist, a psychologist, or a clinical kind of person, or was I going to be a teacher? And a good friend of mine, a wise person said, you should find your people as in who do you really want to hang out with? And I was at some retreats and other kind of well-being things for myself to find renewal. And I found myself gravitating to the teacher tables all the time. Anytime there was a teacher in the retreats, I would be like, oh, what are you doing? How's this working? And I was friends with those social workers and I am married to one. Uh, But now as the world has evolved, I get to work at one of Australia's largest social service agencies, helping families. And I am one of the leaders in education. So, you know, I I, I felt like I had to make choices. I did make choices, but uh, found our own little place right there in the middle. That's pretty much describes the book, too. Oh, that absolutely does. And I can just imagine you with those Venn diagrams trying to work it all out. (laughs) And then eventually you ended up in all of it. And that is just magic. Yes. But I will say quite seriously, 
I found out that I was a bossy person. And it turns out <laughs> that as teachers, we like to craft communities. We like to have the sort of boundary of the classroom and then kind of hone that little community together and then spread that community through the school. And I realized, ah, I like that idea of trying to craft a, a, a place of belonging, a place that that we could sort of make it our own as a classroom. That's what always drew me to the, to the, the work of teaching. Yes, and that is the goal of teaching to create an environment where people feel safe and belong and seen and heard. So I'm curious to know, what were your first years of teaching like? Did they live up to the expectations? Was it something like Dangerous Minds or To Serve With Love? How was your first few years of teaching? I love that you mentioned those movies because I think so many of us have grown up with those movies and they are inspirational. And I love those movies in particular because, you know, at their best, they're highlighting the voices of the young people, you know, and they're really hinging real life experience of students who may struggle and gives us some indication that, yes, even though this is fictionalized or non-fictionalized fictionalized, non-fiction stories, but, uh, you know, Connecting to those young people in those movies, I thought, ah, we need more people who are doing that. Uh, I, When I started teaching, I had a mentor in the school and she said, oh, don't worry. Your first year is a wash. You'll make tons of mistakes. You'll have to fix everything your second year. And I remember arrogantly looking at her like, oh, don't worry. I've studied up. I'm ready to go. I won't make as many mistakes as you're saying. It's going to be a great year. And I made every single possible mistake. And those wise words did ring in me because I thought, okay, next year's a new year. I'm going to keep on moving. And I had the really unique experience of um, being pulled into a room at the end of my first year of teaching and said, the principal said, we're giving you an option. You can stay with this class. And we called it looping. You can loop them from fourth grade into fifth grade. And I asked some people, you know, should I do this or should I have a fresh start? What does it mean? And uh, another wise person said to me, if you do this, you'll essentially earn yourself a non-credited master's degree in child development because you'll be able to see these same kids as they're growing and learning. And within like the first term of that second year with those same kiddos, kids who were really struggling with double digit subtraction, and we had like painfully tried to do this all year, the prior year, suddenly it just, their cortex opened up and I was watching them do things. And I thought, ah, this is about patience <laughs> and realizing that some of these kids just need steady, steady, steady practice. So I did have the experience. Uh, those kids were giving me my uh, non-credited master's degree in development, but I highly recommend that experience of uh, uh, running through a trajectory for a few years with the same students to learn that stuff. Oh, that makes so much sense because there have been so many term fours where I wish I didn't have to say goodbye to a set of yeah. students. Like we've just got to a space where we understand each other. We're in flow and it's yeah. just working. And to say goodbye almost feels heartbreaking because you have got that beautiful relationship forming. And it makes me laugh to think about those first um, moments in the classroom where you have this expectation that I'll be the calm one, I yeah. won't be yelling, I won't be raising my voice, you know, no, I'm totally. going to be that understanding understanding teacher. Um, did it work out like that for you in those first few days? Of course it did not work <laughs> like that. And, you know, 
again, I, and I keep mentioning these mentors in my life because, you, you know, we stand on the shoulders of, you know, the people who came before us and have just trying to pass on their knowledge. And sometimes we take it, sometimes we don't. Another great mentor said to me, it's not about you. It's not about you. And I kept thinking, all right, students, you're arguing with me. You're resisting. You're doing bananas behavior a lot. Uh, and I'm trying to make it not about me, but you can't help but make it about you. And f- frankly, I was making it about me in really negative ways. I was taking on stuff that I knew was probably modeling and mirroring the de-escalation of my own students. They would yell at me. I would yell back at them uh, because everyone in my school at the time yelled. I thought teaching was yelling and it was about, oh, they, if you don't hear, if they don't hear your directions or don't follow you, it's probably because they didn't hear you. Okay. So I would spend so much of my time uh, just sort of elevating myself, trying to think louder and louder is better and better. Uh, Frankly, that did not help. And I've had so many moments where I've started off the day and it's really nice and calm and things are going quite well. I think, yeah, this is really good. This is going really well. And then you sort of hit recess and things start to get a little bit shaky. And then after lunch, you're looking at that clock to think, ooh. Hang on. Oh, I, I I applaud you for reaching recess. I mean, look, I mean, this is about like full disclosure. Uh, and <laughs> friends of mine uh, who have read the book are saying you were quite vulnerable. And it's funny to in the book. And I keep thinking I wasn't being vulnerable. I was just being honest. Uh, I admit fully that I I would start the day at like nine oh five, looking at two of those kids in the front of the line and staring them down, saying, "Today." is going to be a good day, right? And I just think, oh my gosh, if my boss said that to me at the in the first five minutes of my workday, I would feel like I would crumble inside, right? And I'd think, oh, this is not the place where I can be my best. So again, the whole point of this book is to share our research and strategies and experiences to really boost, particularly teachers new to our profession, uh, so they can stand on our shoulders. Yes, absolutely. And for people who um, haven't heard Tom's story before, he started out teaching in the Bronx. So (laughs) when it comes to understanding complex behaviours, complex systems, you've got such a rich understanding of that. And now working with Berry Street here in Australia, it is just remarkable to see how far we've come in our level of understanding when we look at behaviour. So when you're looking at someone, particularly a young person, that that is displaying behaviour that is really difficult, really challenging, what's going through your mind? Oh, so I'll I'll give you two answers. (laughs) The first answer is what used to go through my mind. Uh, You know, I would see a kid push their work on the floor topple over tables, scream at me and other kids, and I would launch straight into the choices lecture. The choices lecture is I puff myself up and say, you're about to make bad choices. You've made bad choices. Choices are the key to your education. We make good choices here. You will not go to high school if you have bad choices. You will not get a job. Um, I really thought, you know what? This kid is choosing to make bad choices. Then 
I sat in an auditorium as part of my uh, one of my master's degrees and heard educational philosopher Alfie Cohen. And he just sort of radically changed my perspective in the best ways and said, kids make the best choices they can. And at that moment, I thought, all right, so if they're making the best choice they can, I'm clearly not facilitating their next best choice. Um, one of the reasons that I loved Barry Street right away, and I have to be honest, I had no intention ever, ever, ever of leaving New York or leaving um, leaving the United States of America because my American citizen friends uh, and I are don't really see ourselves as moving away from that place. Uh, so I always thought it would have to be pretty compelling to figure out way to escape America. And so... Uh, uh, I, I, I fell in love with Melbourne very quickly, very cool place. I fell in love with Victoria and Australia, but really the reason I came here was because Barry Street had been holding on to real innovation in the science of trauma-informed practices. And trauma-informed practices specifically related to therapeutics and clinical support for our young people. And uh, a decade ago was this building energy and this movement around trauma-informed education. What would be the best practices? What would be the research necessary to validate it? How could we extend those practices to teachers uh, like uh, you and me? You know, and so the the opportunity to be part of that innovation and to really try some exciting new things in a country that had the capacity to try new things. Because unfortunately, when I talk to my friends in the UK or the United States, you know, there are some schools that are so over-legislated and so over-tested that they just don't have the space to be able to really interweave well-being approaches and trauma-informed practice approaches the way we can here, that I thought this is the place that I think I need to be to, to sort of keep growing as an educator. So now, when, all the long story, back to your question. Now, when I see a kid struggle, the first thing I think of is what unmet need is this kid trying to make, meet? Because we all are trying to meet our needs in healthy ways or unhealthy ways if we don't have those strategies. And now I can look at you know Maslow's and other developmental hierarchies to think, oh, this kid truly is hungry. This kid truly did not get a good night's sleep. That is not something I can change today as a teacher. Let's call those systemic issues. We want to work with families and working communities to help those families. But as a teacher, if I see a kid struggling, I've got to, at my best self, kind of take a breath and think, okay, this kid is trying to meet a need. It is definitely not working out right now. How do I help them meet this need? And another turn in our work is what strengths is this kid showing right now? I mean, it can be totally annoying, but frankly, this kid has the strength of fairness, persistence, and curiosity. They're trying to get into everyone's business, and those are strengths. They're, they're being overused right now. So from a strengths approach, how can I figure out what other strengths this kid has? Because so many of the kids, particularly the kids at Barry Street, who are often living in out-of-home care, they do have the strengths of courage and persistence and fairness. When you've lived your whole life in a place where you're spotting inequity, 
you may not have the effective language to communicate that, but you know when things are not fair. And at our best, we're able to nurture that strength towards social action and contribution. So that's kind of the long-term game that I think we can play. And wouldn't that be amazing if when we saw difficult and challenging behaviours, if we had that ability to stop, to use that wise advice from your mentor, it's not personal, it's not about you, to step back and think what is that unmet need and hold and nurture, what is this strength? Because as you are saying that, I had so many students fly through my mind who I thought, yes, they were so difficult and the whole year level loved them. You know, they were such leaders, like that's such spark and spunk. Yes, yes. And I think that's that's a key, right? Like, I mean, I am not saying that every single kid in your in one's life, you know, you have an immediate attachment to. Uh, some kids have such behaviors that it, we, we have to put in extra effort to make those connections. However, I know a lot of us are choosing to work in schools that we don't really have to, right? We're, we're deliberately making choices to work in communities of educational inequity or working in schools with a lot of privilege. But we also know those are young people with the weight of the world on their shoulders who are absolutely trying to contend with the uncertainty of the world. I speak from Melbourne right now. Uh, I've just uh, been have the dubious uh, dubious label of living in the world's longest locked down city. And we know that so many of our young people now have been missing rites of passage, missing the predictability of community and school that uh, a lot of kids need our support. And so, you know, for us, it's very much about figuring out how we can take a breath at our best self and figure out how can I stay in my strategy mindset. But one more thing I got to say, we're human beings. And um, I never, I, I have to have a lot of unconditional positive regard for the teachers in our life who are just doing the best we can, right? So we're human beings, we get activated with our own stress response. And a lot of the times, I think the yelling is because we are having a rough day, but also we care. And it's coming out sideways for us. You know, we want this kid to achieve. We take it on ourselves. It debilitates our own well-being. So it is about patience for all of us in these moments. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's nothing like a classroom full of 25, 30 individuals that gives us this opportunity to constantly practice this notion <laughs> of unconditional positive regard. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Oh, sure. I certainly would love to, Meg. Uh, uh, so many of our uh, listeners out there will have heard of unconditional positive regard. But however, I also uh, have learned in my research and practices out there that it's still not, that terminology is still not the bedrock of formal teacher qualification training university stuff. Uh, so which is why it's so important to keep talking about this term. So uh, unconditional positive regard was uh, a, uh, was originally conceived in the late 60s by Stanley Standall and popularized by Carl Rogers, humanistic psychologist. And it was it's a theory for mental health professionals and therapeutic workers to hold space for the person they are helping, to, to 
understand that I may not have to, I know I don't love what you're doing. I mean, your actions are problematic probably, and you're probably meeting your own needs in some unhealthy ways for yourself and others. However, non-verbally, if I like, you know, frown, or if I kind of shiver a little bit when you're telling me stuff I don't want to hear, then the therapeutic alliance or that relationship is severed. And the person who needs the help is not going to get the help because they can tell non-verbally that you don't trust them and they're not going to trust you. So applying that to the classroom, we know that uh, teachers can hold this thing called unconditional positive regard when they do a few things. When they when they're thinking about planning for and talking to other teachers in the workroom about that kid, we ask you to separate that kid from their own behavior when you speak about them or plan or reflect on them. Uh, meaning, uh, instead of saying that little kid's a nightmare, I'm not a Pollyannish person. I would prefer the teacher to say, wow, that kid has nightmarish behavior, right? It's a quick turn, but enough for us to say the kid is a kid. The behavior is the behavior. We can describe the behavior all we want, hopefully in professional ways, but you can see the difference there. Also, unconditional positive regard for us as educators is about remembering these kids are struggling because they've missed some healthy developmental gates in their own child development. A lot easier when you're working with a preschooler or primary school student to think, I have a little one who is reading far below their age level, the social emotional intelligence of a toddler. I have to kind of remember I'm the adult. For my high school teacher, it's a lot harder. I've been a high school teacher. I think you have too, right? Yeah. Yes. When they're standing taller than you, when you know they're doing very adult things after school, which are alarming, you're thinking, I'm a human being in the community. So are you. This feels unsafe. It's a lot harder to hold that space for them. Uh, the good news is if you can do the things that I've just said, we can call them out with love in our voice. We can give them the teacher look that says, I care about you. Get back to work. And you, you know, those of us who are pretty skilled at this now over many, many years, we realize that our kids are non-verbally sensing into the their world, the classroom, and they're saying, who's there for me and who's not there for me? And so I've known, and I bet you are like this too, Meg, because I've known you for some years now. There's this moment where you know you can make a connection with a kid and say, I'm not damning you in my brain. I am so here for you, but I have pretty high expectations for you when I know you can do this, like the best coaches, you know, the best artistic directors, the people that trust that you, they can give you fix it feedback. Those are the relationships that I think we can model unconditional positive regard on. Absolutely. And I think being able to walk that line of, yes, you are capable and yes, we have human moments is such a skill and it's a practice. And I'm thinking back to, I remember when I was in year 12, I had a teacher who I had the privilege, Marg Horton, if you're listening, who I went on to teach with. But I remember she had this incredible ability that she would be able to tell us to change our uniform in such a way that like, of course, sure, like no problem, I'll do that for you. And then the very next day to someone else on duty would say, you know, socks up, like no way. Am I doing that for you? No chance. And so this is such a skill, isn't it, Tom? 
Oh, Meg, you, I, for obviously our listeners can't see us. I am smiling ear to ear because, uh, and my friends in New York who will be listening to this too, they will know for many, many years, uh, after I worked in the Bronx and moved to Harlem and worked there for a while, um, I was the uniform police of the school. <laughs> I, I, as part of my job description, I had to look at every single one of those annoying little infractions of your shirt tucked in, you're wearing a hat, your earphones are in. Why aren't you wearing the right color of shoes? And you just realize, oh my gosh, like these are community expectations. We know why kids are struggling. We know why they struggle to do this. Sometimes it is a choice. Sometimes it's not a choice, but all those little things can absolutely disrupt relationship. And you're right, Meg, that skill of giving fix-it feedback to a kid and they'll listen takes years. And we want to shortcut that skill for our new teachers for sure. Absolutely. I remember when I started to be a body pump instructor, actually, they yeah. said it's always connection before choreography. You can get away with really oh, crappy choreography if you've got connection in the room. They will do whatever you want if you can have the connection. But if you don't have connection, you will not get away with missteps in choreography. And I think that applies so much to our classrooms as well. Absolutely. I, can I ask you? Like, uh, yes. what, So, I mean, in a body pump classroom what would you do yeah. to make that connection so you could get people where you wanted them to go oh straight away just oh I think arriving being present having the music yeah. going and I'd start with has anyone got any news and I had such a community in that space I had the same front row for nearly 10 years Tom like it was such an energy and thinking about what you said earlier about looping is I had that opportunity to see these people Monday, Wednesday, Friday, building relationships. And so, so I got to the point where I'd be listening to a song because the launches just happened and I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I could work something out with this. I don't have to think too much about the choreography because I know that I'll be able to do it and I know that I'm going to have a good experience. And I think that is a real skill and art and sometimes in teaching and in parenting, we focus so much on getting it right that we forget that getting it right is not as important as being there and being present. Meg, you've just given a mini masterclass to our listeners on how to set up the classroom for success. Uh, I can't help but put my researcher hat on for a second just to kind of, listeners, I'm analyzing Meg's answer now. What she just said was you've got to prime this classroom. You've got to, from the moment they come in, create the environment that the students want to be in music, the smiling, the welcoming, that that is something that for so many of our struggling students, they may not have even heard their name said this morning in a positive way, but it is about the environment and saying, yeah, this is worth it for me to be here. Uh, I probably need to be in one of your classes. Oh, <laughs> Get it myself is so in much after this lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so much fun to think about these small micro opportunities we have, because I know that we can get weighed down by this idea of, oh, there's so many students. So a secondary teacher, hundreds of students, but it's not hundreds. about that. <laughs> it's the micro moments of catching them with their, with your eyes. I always say to people, if you can get the trifecta, if you can get eyes, smile and name, boom, that's magic. Magic, magic, magic. And there's a 
great deal of neuroscience uh, and physical science is backing up what you just said, that we're creating real boosts of oxytocin, which is that connection uh, neurochemical and dopamine and serotonin. And these, these are the neurochemicals that say to our bodies, this is worth it. This connection is something I want to feel again and again. Of course, I'm not going to take a left turn into the sort of uh, controlled and uncontrolled substance ways to boost those chemicals in addictive ways. But naturally, the body certainly produces those chemicals when we're in safe relationships together. Absolutely. And it's something that I have used all the time in my teaching practice is getting the class list out, getting three highlighters. And highlighting the ones that I do have a good relationship with, and generally the ones that are probably a bit like us, so it's a bit easy, ones who in the middle and ones think, wow, I really need to spend some conscious time building up that relationship through those micro moments. Oh, I got to build on that too. And you said that middle group. Wait, what, what color is the middle group in your plan? The middle group's the orange. The orange kids. <laughs> I often will, when teachers come to us and say, look, I've got kind of a mess in my classroom. I've got lots of colors of kids. What am I supposed to be doing? For sure, I would be first in prioritizing those orange kids because they are the besties of the other kids and they can go either way and they are making choices a lot of the time and they can get the support. And so we want to make sure that we lessen the amount of orange kids because they can begin to learn some of these strategies quicker and apply them quicker so that we can spend time with the kids with the most complex needs. I mean, these are kids that are going to need a great deal of support, not just this year, but maybe for their entire schooling life and support onto higher education or workplace experiences or beyond, that those are kids that we need community support to provide with them and for them and their families. And we don't want people to think they have to do that alone. Uh, So that's why I love well-being workers in schools and social workers and case managers who are really working in a, at Berry Street, we call it a care team approach, acknowledging that for that top tier kid that needs the most support. We don't want teachers to be alone in providing that. Yes. And what's coming to mind for me, Tom, is I've worked in some really privileged schools. I call them like the educational Disneyland where you've got everything. And I've also worked in some schools where, you know, you're putting breakfast club on because you know that you just have to because it's hard for kids to learn if they haven't had breakfast. And something that comes to mind is that we need to really think about what we're doing. We really need to step back and really look at this human piece and what is the struggle that's going on and how is that influencing the way that they feel and function and how is that presenting in their lives? So I'd love to know from you, how does stress really impact us and our bodies? We all react to stress in some different ways. I certainly want to make a couple of clear alignments that, you know, we talk about daily speed bumps of stress. We talk about stress when learning, and then we talk about some significant stressors within communities and with families. Um, Specifically to the uh, first, I want to talk about then the um, sort of learning stress, because one thing that we now know is learning is not smooth sailing. 
And a lot of kids are trying to tell themselves that learning should be easy and smooth and I should race through it. However, I think we can healthily send a message to say, actually, for you to learn something new, you got to be a little bit escalated and your body has to kind of be in that curious perseverance mindset to say, can I do this? Can I do this? I don't know if I can do this. And that is a tender window of tolerance uh, for my window tolerance fans out there. That's a tender window of a kid saying, I don't know if I can do this. However, that's the window of learning. And for those of us who love learning over a lot of years, we realize that moment where you don't think you can do it, we as mature people take a breath, put that thing down, pick it up again the next day and say, I'm going to keep trying this because it's important to me. So we want to send the message that when you feel escalated when learning, that is not you getting overstressed. That's your body telling you a message that, hey, you need to be aware, you need to seek support, you need to be aware of how you're feeling because this is going to be tough stuff. So in kids that are doing really well, they have grown to love that feeling. The kids that I work with who have uh, a number of adverse childhood experiences in their family's background or histories of educational disruption, that stress response that has been firing often from in utero due to quite seriously, I suppose the most serious thing I'll say today is in, in utero due to the impacts perhaps of family violence or escalation in the home. So many of the young people we serve at Berry Street have been escalated in their heart rate, their body temperature, their ability to stay self-regulated because their little bodies have been trying to keep themselves alive and at steady state. Uh, for so, so long, even before the years of stepping into primary school, that they now have, uh, their body has trained itself to have what we call an elevated baseline for stress tolerance. That's a mouthful to say, this kid is now in the position after five years of struggle in their first five years on this planet, they now realize I feel alive in myself when I feel elevated, when I'm on the edge, when I'm scanning the room, when I'm worried about what they're saying behind me, and I'm worried about social media, and I'm worried about where I'm going to be after school, and what I'm going to find when I go home, that that elevation is keeping them alive. It's also exhausting them. And so we can see why they just don't have the resources yet for strong um for strong learning capacity because their bodies are just working overtime to mobilize through adrenaline and cortisol and all these other things to keep themselves looking steady state. Uh, another thing that's arisen from our research is we take, um, we uh, here's a strategy for our listeners. We love heart rate, right? Because it's a skill. It's a psychoeducation skill. We want to monitor our heart rate. We want to monitor when we take a deep breath, we feel more centered, we feel good in our bodies, um, and we can think clearly. Uh, what we find is we teach our high schoolers to measure their heart rates and, you know, science and math stuff. But, you know, 12 year olds living in out of home care, they should, I say should carefully because every kid's at their own age and stage, but they should have a resting heart rate of, you know, what, 60 to 80, 90 beats per minute. That's like the ticking clock. But Kids in out-of-home care, we find, can have a resting heart rate of up to 120 beats per minute. That's almost double the amount 
of hard work and overtime of their hearts just to look steady state. So you may look at that kid in your classroom thinking he looks too calm. He knows what he's doing. He's making a terrible choice. He's bothering other people. But, you know, at your best moments, best self moment, take a breath and think, if you know this kid has had a lifetime of struggle, this kid's is this kid is mobilizing so many resources. And that's why we have all the strategies in the book to help people understand what can you do to bring to, to create a culture of safety, have self-regulation strategies to keep keep focus on the body, because the more we can get the body to move in the classroom, the more that they can build what we like to describe as integration between their body and their brain for learning. Oh, Tom, I just have to take a moment. (laughs) Thanks. Just to, this is so important. This body piece is so, so important. And I remember when I first learned it from you, And I remember being in the four-day program, actually had a newborn at home and it was all happening. And I just remember thinking, wow, so that's why um, we'll come up with a name. What a name? We'll we'll say Brody. So Brody, (laughs) that's why Brody never wears a jumper. That's why he's always in shorts and T-shirt all winter. That's right. That's right. And I'm here saying, put your jumper on. And he's like, I'm running hot. I don't need need my jumper. It's uh it's it's a moment of compassion too and understanding. Uh and it and it's it's real stuff in the body. I mean, we 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 talk a lot about the body in our research and in the book, but also uh for our listeners, a helpful prompt for us is stress is stored in the body that that we're holding our stress non-verbally in our bodies. Yes, we can talk about it. That's a good thing. We can communicate, oh, I'm not feeling great right now. I need a little support or I need some time out or whatever the thing is. And the language is important. And we want to build the capacity in young people and ourselves to you know, stay with language, stay with your thinking and communication skills. However, because we know that stress is so stored in the body, that the language may fail you and you may not be able to communicate at the best of times uh, because you have to work it out in your own body. So when I learned that a few years ago, and yeah, thank you, Meg, we get to teach that to people now. I think it's both an aha moment, but also a moment of intervention that says, oh, I can do stuff. And I can remember that this is deeply held in the body. It's not about me, but it is a prompt for me to remember these kids have to move, you know, think about what a kid does when they're frustrated, they're kind of shaking and they're moving their knee and they're hitting their hand and they're tapping their pencils. And now I want everyone to know when they're doing that stuff, that's actually a good thing. They're moving their bodies and they're trying to stay regulated. And they're saying with their bodies, you're boring, or I don't know how to do this, or I'm about to lose control, but I haven't yet. I'm right here. And so our teachers at Barry Street know when we see that, we say, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for staying in this chair. We're going to give you some support. Uh, And part of that awareness is the project, isn't it? Like it's, it's helping kids understand they are not less than when they feel themselves escalating, but that is a moment or a micro moment for them to seek support. And so we want to give them all the strategies verbally and non-verbally to do that. Absolutely. And I know that I've worked with students in this capacity and to see the looks on their face when they realize that light bulb moment of, I'm not broken. 
I'm not wrong. Totally. It's my brain. Like, totally. Oh. Totally. Uh, and you said it, the brain. You know, when we, uh, at Berry Street School, we have a high school across Victoria. And um, one of the first lessons that we teach our kids when we meet them is, this is your brain. This is your stress response. This is what's been happening your whole life. And we do see those aha moments like, oh, that's okay. And uh, it's pretty great when we see kids learning about themselves and being able to apply that to their learning and their classroom relationships and everything else. Well, it's transformative to take something from where you feel like I am angry person or I am just useless. I'm whatever the story is. I'm stupid. I'm dumb to like, oh, there's potential for me to not be as angry all the time. There's an option to learn to do things differently. Like that's creeping up this window of possibility. And that's what we can offer people through this unconditional positive regard through witnessing a struggle, and it's just, I just keep saying magic because it's just incredible to witness. You're, all, you're also talking, I think, about teacher well-being too, right? Because, you know, it's when you know the stuff we've been talking about, as a teacher now, I'll ask you all to consider, to notice your own body, to notice your own escalation, to notice your own breathing. And at the best of times, you know, when you can take, you know, when things are happening at our most conscious moments, we can take the balcony view and kind of see ourselves in that moment, in that moment, you're thinking my heart rate's going up. I'm starting to grind my teeth. I am now leaning forward. My armpits are sweating. And that is a moment where my body's priming to do something. Uh, and by the way, don't anyone think that that self-knowledge is that you're a failure if you don't have that self-knowledge yet, because I teach this stuff for a living and still I'll be escalated and stressed out for an hour. And then I'll say, oh, I haven't taken a deep breath in an hour because I'm still looking at stuff on my screen and having conversations I do not want to have. And I know this stuff really well. So it's a lesson for well-being for all of us, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And also thinking about that piece, and this is something that I'd love you to explore with us, Tom, because I've worked with so many teachers and they say, me, the students don't know. The students don't know that I'm stressed and I'm overwhelmed. And I just can't help but giggle to think students, especially the students we're talking about today, I think they can smell it. They can feel that. They they are, and I'd love you to explore this idea or this neuroception, like what's happening in this co-regulation space. Oh, co-regulation, my friend, absolutely is defined as our ability to regulate another person non-verbally with our own self, our own bodies. So what we talked about before around, you know, my experience, I'll, I'll make I statements. Kid yells at me, I yell back at kid. Now, both of us are escalated and both of us are essentially out of control in our own bodies. We're saying stuff that's potentially scary to both of us. Um, the opposite of that is kid is yelling at me, I've got to take a deep breath and realize, yes, it's important what I say, but what I am about to do with my physical self is going to mean more right now around breathing, moving slower than the kid, getting the kid to mirror you. Often I've spent, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know a lot of this stuff when I was working in New York, but I did have this impulse that a lot of times I'd say to kids who are crying in my office, you're escalated and I'm about to get escalated because I'm seeing you again today. Let's go for a walk. 
we're going to walk this out. We're going to run up and down the stairs together. We're going to go outside and just keep walking. And I'm going to walk faster than you. Come on, keep up with me. Or I'm going to walk slower than you. Come on. So no, I'm an old person. Stay back with me. But that moving side by side, shoulder to shoulder is co-regulating. And that is something we absolutely have to remember so that we can get kids back in thinking brain and we can get them back into a place where we can talk about decisions and choices. And we get that little funny moment with kids like, look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not upset with you for making that choice, but we're going to talk about it. And you know, kids kind of grunt at you and go, okay, that's fine, whatever. And you're like, this, that's enough. <laughs> I'm not expecting you to self-reflect to the point where you can talk about your unmet needs, but you're saying, yes, I'll try again tomorrow. Uh, one more thought that, that you, you kind of prompted us here around well-being and that teacher who may struggle to notice themselves. We really want teachers to model their own processes for de-escalation in front of their kids and make it dual purpose. And oh, how I wish somebody had told me to do this way back then in New York, where I would, you know, now myself now would, and I do say when I'm in front of young people, this is not great. I'm taking a breath. You're going to see me walking. Not walking out of here, but I need to take a few laps around this classroom. <laughs> or let's just, I, you need to just hold on because I've got to collect myself. And that is me coaching myself in front of my students. So they realize we are human beings, they can see in any way. And if I try to sort of mask it, it might come out in an unhealthy way. But also, what our research is showing is that the more that teachers model their own well being strategies in front of their kids, that relationships and trust begins to increase and kids can begin to take on the responsibility for themselves. It takes uh, time. Don't want anyone to think it's quick. Yeah, absolutely. This is all a practice. And I always come back to this notion of, well-being is a verb, you know, it's a practice. Everything we're talking about is a skill that we can develop. And I think back to um, a class I had, it was a year seven class in country Queensland, dominated by some pretty physical boys that just wanted to play rugby. They really didn't want to be in the classroom. And I was starting to explore these concepts and it was in a community where these concepts weren't traditional. And I remember walking in and saying, whew, I am escalated. I need to take a break. And the looks on their faces was just, they didn't know what to do. It was curiosity, but then also, has she lost her mind? What's going on? Because <laughs> before that, I'd been trying so hard to desperately be in control and have, yeah. but what I've realised is that there was such disconnect there because I wasn't showing up as my nervous system was already showing up and beaming through the classroom. And the more that I've learned to present and be with my nervous system, the more safe students feel, the more safe teachers feel with me. And it's just this incredible sense of safety when we can get to this point, as you said, through time, through practice and potentially through looping. It could be years to get to this point. And it brings me to this other thought that I've had so many times is I've done lots of casual teaching. And when you go into a primary school, I remember one student saying to me, oh, are you an Olympian? <laughs> it's like, no, I'm just wearing runners, you know, like I'm just, you know. But then you go to a secondary school and they're like, hmm, like what are you doing here? 
and thinking about that wherever our students are, it's going to take us time to build that relationship. It could be literally just wearing runners or it could be three or four years to develop these skills and strategies. Also, to especially people new to our profession, it's really counterintuitive to this, uh, this, this, this thing that happens. But often when a kid is really struggling in their personal life, they're going to treat the safest person in their life and enact some of those dominator behaviors that they are witnessing in their own life because they can with the safest person. They know that the safest person, often a teacher or an education support worker or well-being staff member, is they know that this professional person is there for them. And they know maybe that they're, that person isn't yelling at them or isn't going to make them feel less than. So they will try to exercise power and control the only way they know how. And so, again, just a moment of conscious breathing when possible. Absolutely. And that brings us to this notion of in order to do all of this beautiful work in the classroom, in order to give to other people, we need and have a responsibility to create space to get to know ourselves and our own nervous system and how can we walk into these spaces feeling centred and grounded. And I know that's a lot of the work that you do. It's the the reason why I've just sort of fallen in love with trauma-informed practices and strength-based practices, well-being education, positive education, right? All these names, which have important places at important times. the reason I think it's so important, uh, this new journey for what education can become, is it's asking educators to take on a challenge that perhaps they didn't realize was part of the job, which is, you know, I want I, I care about learning. I want kids to learn stuff and succeed in the world. Now, I think we can all agree in this uncertain, unpredictable world we find ourselves in, we are modeling adulthood, that we're saying to kids, Look, if you practice strategies of self-care, and I'm modeling this in front of you, if you can activate your strengths, if you can stay in that growth mindset, if you can absolutely remember your social and emotional intelligence, you're going to like who you are. And the only way I think kids really learn that is to be around adults who are living this stuff, uh, because I... We've also seen the opposite. We've seen adults that, and and I unfortunately, this has come from my research that there's a group of, you know, there was a group of teachers that I, um, that we were working with who said, I care about this for kids, but I don't show up at work for personal development. Like, this is not from, you know, like I just go home and I switch off. And we realized those were teachers who self-reported negative well-being or decreasing well-being at the end of the year because they weren't taking this on for themselves. Uh, So we call it dual purpose. Um, And for those of us who accept the challenge of working in communities and helping schools, it is now, I think, becoming a non-negotiable to say, if I'm going to teach, if I want this to happen in my kids, I've got to figure out ways to make it authentic for me. Absolutely. And the layer that I'd love to put on top of this is the same thing goes for parenting. Parenting is such a professional development, personal development, daily opportunity to think instead of what's wrong with my kid, what are they doing wrong, to think, wow, how can we grow and learn through this together? What are they teaching me? How can I step up a little bit more? And 
imagine if we think more about that shared learning experience and that learning is never done. Just because you're the teacher or the parent doesn't mean you're done. My biggest learning has absolutely come from my children and mm. some of the hardest te- um, harder, harder students that I've worked with, I've had the most amount of growth and there's so much opportunity here for continuous learning if we open ourselves up and read the books, listen to these conversations and have conversations. And I'm not sure about you, Tom, but I am so excited about the future of education. I think we're going into such a more nuanced stage of education. How are you feeling about it? Well, I I, I think so. Uh, we have some hurdles as a planet uh, yes. in, in, in communities, but, you know, when you look at, 21st century workplace skills. What do we need to do? What do we need to train our kids to do? We need to train our kids to have jobs that we could not imagine what those position descriptions are right now. So what are those jobs going to be about? It's going to be about collaboration, creativity, innovation, forging a world that we cannot describe right now. Thus, is it about coverage? No, I don't think it's about coverage. It's about skills to keep finding your way in this world and manage yourself in this world. So that's, again, why I love the disciplines of trauma-informed practice and well-being education, because it's saying you will forge your pathway if you know your strengths, if you can manage yourself and you hear things your boss or your teammates don't want to, <laughs> that you don't want to hear from them. When you can wake up the next day with a resilient mindset and say, yesterday was not great. I'm going to keep going because my team needs it and I love my work and I've gotten to the place where I can keep contributing to my community or my work. That those, I th- I do think if we maintain focus as a system, uh, that we know what to do now, I think. It's, it's not a mystery anymore. The evidence base is building and building and building over the last 10 years. Um, so now we have to find out ways, top down, bottom up within our systems to get it done. Oh, Tom. I'm so excited. This is such meaningful work and I could literally talk to you all day because this just makes my heart sing. It's seeing education in a whole new light and a light that brings out the best in everybody in the system. So I'd love to wrap up this conversation with the invitation for you to finish a few sentences. Okay. (laughs) Um, I am inspired by... I'm inspired by that moment when a teacher the day before had had it and said, put their hands up and said, I can't, there's nothing else I can do. And then they come back the next day after maybe reading something, listening to this podcast, uh, finding out a new strategy and saying, all right, I can try this. And I am inspired when teachers say, I'm going to try one new thing in this classroom. I'm going to, you know what, Tom, that thing actually works when I prime the classroom with positive emotion, when I played music in the morning, that kids really came in and we got to work a little quicker because they liked the music and tomorrow they're going to try the choose their own music, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but I'm inspired by teachers saying, ah, it feels more possible because I'm trying one new thing. Oh, magic. Um, when life feels hard, 
when life feels hard, I've got to return to my pets. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, my partner will listen to this and that's nice for him, but really <laughs> it's, I connect to my partner. Yes. But when life feels hard, especially in the last 18 months, it's been about my gorgeous puppy and my kitten and their best friends. And I snuggle with them at night <laughs> and I can definitely feel a sense of unconditional positive regard in those moments. Uh, are they the most beautiful teachers of the unconditional positive regard? Uh, yeah, plus attachment and attunement and a healthy and safe touch and all sorts of therapeutically informed interventions that I need at the end of a rough day. <laughs> oh, I just love that. Um, an underrated skill is? To sleep on it. <laughs> another, wise mo- uh, another wise mentor years ago said, if you don't know how to solve a problem, you got to go to sleep. Now, easier said than done, right? You like, like you got to be able to breathe in your bed and kind of click off your brain from rumination. But you know, the science backs us up that you know we've all had, you know, we had a tough problem. You wake up the next day and something clicks, and that rest and renewal, something happens to us. So, yeah, we got to keep sleeping. <laughs> oh yeah. And I am looking forward to. I'm looking forward to going to my local high street and shopping for scented candles and going into Bunnings. And but honestly, well, that I mean, that is a practical thing that I'm really looking forward to. Hopefully, uh, well, uh, we're recording this in late October. And so uh, in a serious way, I'm looking forward to seeing my community open up again because I just know so many people are struggling and we need to be able to breathe together and feel our community together and our community rhythms and the people in your neighborhood that you get to just see and remember, ah, we're here together. So to my fellow Melburnians uh, and other people across our country who are experiencing what we've experienced, we're all looking forward, I hope, to the next few weeks. Absolutely. And Tom, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. Thank you for this conversation. You, as always, bring your heart and your mind in a way that opens us up to a new possible future. And I am so grateful that we you were here on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, Meg, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. What a heart and mind opening conversation. Every time I chat with Tom, I learn more about myself and others. Just imagine what is possible if we took on the role of lifelong learners that we can play teacher and student in any moment. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. Number one, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to improve your well-being? Since starting this podcast, I have received some lovely feedback and it makes my heart sing to hear how this podcast is creating a positive ripple effect. I heard that one listener used something they heard in a conversation in their job interview. So here's hoping they get the job. Also, I have received emails asking for wellbeing support from individuals that are looking for a circuit breaker and from wellbeing teams that would like some fresh eyes to look over their approach to wellbeing. So to meet this need, you can now book an individual circuit breaker session if you want to reclaim your energy and your spark and move beyond overwhelm or a school-based session, Fresh Eyes. This is for schools who want some fresh eyes to look over their approach.
To keep in the loop with the latest news, special announcements and practical ways to feel good and live well, subscribe to the Thought of the Week, your free dose of wellbeing education and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share this conversation with your family, friends and colleagues. I really believe that it's individual conversations that can move the collective forward. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.